I'm here with John Prade from the Internet Law Group. Um, John's a pretty interesting guy. Um, this is an interview I've been looking forward to uh, handling for a while. John is uh, someone who's spent a lot of years tracking down hardcore Internet spammers um, and bringing them to justice, and he does it on behalf of companies like um, Verizon and AOL and has, has won some pretty important lawsuits and some decent-sized judgments. John obviously has some strong opinions on this space as well as the legal knowledge to back it up. And so, uh, John, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Adrian. Um, do you maybe want to just uh, get us started, tell us a little bit about who you are and where you grew up and what you want to be when you're a big boy? Sure. Uh, I'm a Midwestern boy, born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, and uh, went to uh, college at Northwestern uh, with a major in political science and then graduated from Yale Law. Uh, I've been out of law school about 20 years, and over that time I have uh, uh, worn a number of hats. I've uh, largely been mostly in private practice uh, as a lawyer with uh, uh, Latham and Watkins in both California and Washington, D.C., but I've also, uh, right out of law school, I clerked for some judges in Indiana, a uh, district court judge, John Tinder, who's recently been elevated to the Seventh Circuit, uh, and then the Indiana Supreme Court Chief Justice, uh, Randy Shepard. Um, I also spent two years working on Capitol Hill uh, on the House side as uh, chief counsel to a House subcommittee dealing with regulatory affairs. Um, and I've been doing uh, this sort of cyber uh, litigation work for about the past 10 years. Um, got into it when uh, this small Internet problem came about known as spam, uh, back when AOL and other ISPs were first starting to recognize that there was this huge wave of cybercrime that was starting to come their way. And... Uh, got engaged at, at that time trying to really help these ISPs figure out how does one deal with this problem and really create the, the legal mechanisms and the enforcement mechanisms and political structures that you need um, to deal with the problem and watch it over the past 10 years morph into the problem that it is today and, and really watching it continue to morph because I, I don't think we're, we're yet at the, at the conclusion of that. Um, so that's my my background in a nutshell. It's been an interesting ride. Hmm. And so where do you live now? Uh, I live in uh, Washington, D.C., suburb, Arlington, Arlington, Virginia. Oh, okay, because I saw, I looked at your side, and you you go back between the West Coast and the East Coast, or you do you are based out in D.C. now? Uh, yeah, I'm based in, based in D.C. now. Right, okay. Okay, um... I'm interested just to first on the legal side. My brother's actually an attorney with um, Wilson Sonsini and is doing uh, in-house counsel work with Google on antitrust. And uh, you've, you've taken a very different route to get where, where you've gotten. You didn't go into one of the, the big-name law firms. Is there a reason why? Well, I started out there. I started out with Latham and Watkins um, after my clerkships doing general litigation. Uh, and so I think I've got that experience uh, under my belt. I know how big law firms work, and I know the value that they add. Um, but I think uh, I left Latham & Watkins to start Internet Law Group about eight years ago, largely because it became obvious to me that the type of work that we were doing at the time uh, is not the sort of work that big law firms really can do well. Um, it requires a tremendous amount of expertise um, and a team of people that really understand the problem and know how to streamline the work. Uh, a lot of our work is strategic in nature. It's not tactical. Um, we represent multiple clients in 
identifying serial fraudsters. And so the work that we do is really leveraged uh, of learning how to acquire information on bad guys and make it available across a large client base. And um, that sort of work, in our experience, is best done in a in a small team with a small team of investigators and lawyers that you really can't put together in a big law firm. You're too isolated generally, and big law firms stay big because they are good at seeming at, at weaving uh, all of their practice practice groups into a cohesive whole. Um, I think if it, you find in big law firms, if a practice group gets isolated and self-supporting, it leaves because it realizes it doesn't need the things that a big law firm provides for it, uh, and so they generally will spin off into their own firm. Um, and I think that's inevitably what, what has happened with us. Oh, that's interesting. So the dynamic there is that um, you're, you're basically um, a, mile, a mile deep and an, and an inch wide, and the big law firms are an inch deep and a, and a, mile, and a mile wide. I mean, it's, I guess that's a, an exaggeration, but to... Sure, I, I, exactly right. I think that while they certainly have their areas of expertise, part of their strength comes from their ability to handle a broad swath of problems that a corporate entity may have. And our expertise is really our ability to drill down and do things in in somewhat an innovative way, as I, I hope we get into in talking about some of our business models. It's, I, I don't know of other law firms in the country, big or small, that are really approaching the problem, the cybercrime, the way we're approaching it. Well, you want to uh, just take it away and tell, tell us a little bit about what, you, what it is that your firm does? Sure. Uh, well, as I said, in a nutshell, we look for ways to bring strategic actions against cyber, cyber criminals. You've got to start with um, a good understanding of the problem that we're attacking. Cybercrime over the past 10 years has really transformed from uh, petty crime and largely um, Americans who were um, kind of geeks geeks gone bad. Uh, it has transformed from that sort of solitary criminal enterprise into a, an extremely sophisticated, extremely international uh, criminal network. Um, and so the bad guys we are chasing are extremely talented and are going to great lengths to hide their activity and to take advantage of the inefficiencies uh, that arise from international boundaries. Um, they're moving their physical bodies to places that are difficult for us uh, in the West to touch and extradite from. They're moving their money to places that are difficult for us to freeze. Uh, and they're moving their computers and their connectivity to places that are difficult for us to, to touch as well. Um, and because of that, you're seeing a convergence, I think, in the bad guy space between economic cyber criminals and terrorists and even nation-state acts of warfare. Um, oh, you think it's going to that sort of level? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. The, the bad guys, anyone that is on the Internet doing something, trying to uh, uh, avoid identification and make money through illegal means, has to jump through a number of hoops or they have to put on a number of masks to hide themselves. And their ability to do that is limited um, by the places that they turn to, the enablers, if you will, that they depend upon to give them the connectivity and the things that they need to do their business. And so our practice really specializes in, first, 
understanding at a deep level the essence of how these cyber enterprises operate and then knowing what are their Achilles heels because ultimately we don't have to necessarily stop the entire enterprise. We have to insert a monkey wrench at some point in their criminal assembly line to stop the assembly line. If they can't process the criminal activity to its completion, they can't make money or do whatever it is they're trying to do. And so, how, how did you get into this in the first place? I mean, you did, obviously didn't study this in school. Yeah, no. I was doing punch cards in college in school to give you an idea of what computers, the, the state of computers back when I was in school. Um, I got into it really from private practice. Um, some ISPs reached out to, uh, to Latham when I was there uh, to take on this problem, this newfangled problem called spam, which no one really at the time understood um, how big it would become and really what sort of a precursor it would be into the entire world of cybercrime. And so I, I got assigned to the case really out of serendipity, but quickly fell in love with it and um, I think came up with some innovative ways to serve the, service the client, uh, ways that involve really marrying the data, marrying our ability to crunch a tremendous amount of data with our ability to bring legal services to bear on the problem. Uh, and by marrying those two skill sets, we've really been able to make headroads into figuring out how does one get at identity behind the cyber criminal problem and put a stop to it. So I, I had gotten into it uh, doing that spam work, but since then it's morphed into representing uh, far more than just ISPs. We represent financial institutions, drug companies, uh, really any any sort of corporate victim of a substantial uh, systemic serial cyber fraud, whether it's a counterfeiting problem with drug companies or fish uh, fishers going after uh, bank customers or mail companies that see their mail systems expand fivefold because they're trying to deal with uh, inbound spam problems or even outbound spam problems. So that's, how big is your practice? Uh, in terms of what? Uh, attorneys or people. Uh, well, I don't talk much about our size. We're a small firm. Uh, we've got less than 20, 20 folk doing the work, but we've got some technology sitting behind what we do. Uh, and we are uh, our technology allows us to grab um, what we need uh, from web pages and emails and other uh, indicia of cybercrime to capture the evidence in real time that we need to get at identity. No, I so, mean, I, I, I wouldn't um, – I, I would suggest that that's an, a sign of doing things right. Um, the best uh, in organizations that I see now um, are the ones that have small teams and, and a 30 or less people and, and more often 20. I think that's exactly right. I love the idea, and it's been fun to work in a small firm environment because I, I, I'm enamored with the skunk works mentality of um, – Stop worrying about what your job description is and start thinking about how to solve the problem. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And we that's, focus that's on that quite a bit. That's like an entrepreneur. Employees don't always like it that much, but uh. <laughs> yeah, uh, some some do. I mean, I think you either thrive yeah. in that environment or uh, or you don't. Yeah, it, it can give you a lot of freedom freedom of thought and opportunity to be creative, but you, you've got to have some creativity to bring to the table. For sure. So you won some big cases. Um, have you gone after guys like um, um, Sanford Wallace and some of these others? I mean, where, where did this start out, and what are some of the big cases that you've been involved with in the past? Sure. Um, well, we've we've had a number of cases. Um, 
that have been litigated and produced some published opinions that have had some impact in the world of cybercrime. Um, uh, a couple that I can mention, we had uh, a published decision in a case we brought for America Online against a, an adult website called Cyber Entertainment Network um, that was brought in 1999. The decision was published in 2001 that really established AOL had sued Cyber Entertainment Network for hiring affiliate advertisers. It's the affiliate advertising model that your listeners are probably well familiar with. Um, but of really suing cyber entertainment based on the principle of negligent enablement and negligent hiring and retention, that they had retained affiliates that uh, it either knew or should have known were engaged in spam to advertise their websites, uh, and that on that basis it could be held liable. And so we used uh, some fairly aggressive technology there to grab the data we needed and establish that um, uh, a large volume of the uh, adult content spam that AOL was seeing at the time was attributable to spammers advertising uh, one of uh, a handful of adult websites controlled by Cyber Entertainment Network and that the individuals behind those spam uh, messages could be identified through their affiliate codes uh, and that some of the affiliates were cycling through serial, uh, serial affiliate codes when they would be identified publicly, an affiliate code would get identified publicly, they'd simply flip to a new affiliate code and continue the process, sort of wash, rinse, and repeat. Uh, so, I mean, you were able to prove that because that's actually, I mean, obviously one of the, the frustrations of the affiliate marketing community because there's, there's been a perception for quite a while that affiliate marketing isn't legitimate. And I don't know, I guess that's slowly, slowly starting to change. I'm in the camp that um, I know profoundly that it's a, it's, it's, it's a uh, a vital part of internet commerce and, 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 and has to be. Um, I mean, there's even companies like Amazon that have been using it for a very long time. And it's been frustrating hearing guys coming out and saying that affiliate marketing is bad and, and you shouldn't do it just because it's, it's filled with spam. I've had conversations with Spam House on that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Where well, do you stand on that, on, that, on that stuff? I think you and I agree. Uh, the, uh, a properly run affiliate program can be extremely powerful, but the key is it has to be run effectively. You have to recognize there are opportunities for abuse and that you are effectively outsourcing your advertising and you have to do so with clear standards in mind and you have to enforce those standards. And it starts with a the simple requirement to have identity. You've got to know who your affiliates are, communicate to them what the rules are, investigate reports of abuse, and uh, effectively adjudicate those reports, even if it's just an internal adjudication. Uh, and so you've got to tell your affiliates that they will be terminated with prejudice if they don't follow the rules. Is there any kind of list out there of, like, here's the, the standards of what you should follow um, for, I, for affiliates? I'm glad you asked. The public injunction that was entered in the AOL versus CEN case, I think, remains the best model I've ever seen on how an affiliate program needs to be run. Uh, that injunction, which is public, I think you can get to it from our website, um, lays out the rules that cyber entertainment agreed to follow uh, in the course of uh, uh, of that as the outcome of that litigation and it lays out those simple standards get identity from affiliates establish rules have a mechanism to receive complaints from the public uh, investigate those complaints report back to the public on the outcome of the uh, the investigation and terminate when necessary and if you do those things you will have a clean affiliate program 
if you don't do those, so they still things, have to do a lot of that stuff anyway. Because one of the big issues they have is um, affiliate fraud, where guys are signing up from like um, exactly they're, weird countries, and then um, they're getting commissions on things like gift cards. Like they might spend a dollar on a gift card and then get twenty dollars back, and then that's a, that's that's almost wiped out uh, a bunch of companies. I think it's getting under control now, mm-hmm. but they have to have a lot of control now anyway, just to manage stuff. So obviously, this should be happening anyway to manage spam. Right, and that's it's just a. Uh, sort of an extension of the mindset. The affiliate operators for a long time have focused on affiliate fraud that hurts their bottom line, but they weren't focusing on their long-term bottom line. And right. that's that's something that I think too many people operating on the Internet aren't thinking about is their long-term risk of liability to third parties who may be hurt by Internet conduct that they are enabling. And I think that's really the, the wave that we're in today is of, trying to help good companies throughout the world understand the myriad ways in which they are enabling, in some way or another, serious cybercrime. The problem and, is, because is, I've been on, on both sides of this, um, and, and so I think we are very much in agreement, but the, the side that I've seen is that um, we get told that, well, uh, affiliate marketing is, is bad and, and it's just for spammers anyway, and so you just shouldn't do affiliate marketing. And that's wrong. I think what you're saying is the correct approach, but when you've got these guys saying, that affiliate marketing is wrong when we know, I just know, I mean, it's like, you know, a, a, a political or religious conviction. I know it is, is a, a, an absolute integral model of the Internet that it's hard to take the rest of what they say seriously, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's right. I think uh, a lot of people view affiliate marketing as simply a um, uh, a sanitized word for criminal marketing. And it's yeah. not. It's it, we need to break that connection, and I think you do that by focusing on the characteristics of the affiliate marketing program. If you have proper characteristics, um, lawful characteristics, it's it can be quite uh, quite powerful, profitable, and useful for you. Are you seeing people's mindsets change on that sort of stuff? Oh yeah, I think so. I think particularly after Can Spam was enacted, um, uh, you had a lot of legitimate marketers who were looking for a way to distinguish themselves from illegitimate marketers, and they viewed can spam as that sort of signal opportunity of, okay, if we do it this way, if we're can spam compliant, uh, our marketing methods will be accepted as legitimate. And uh, I think can spam has helped sort of clear the middle of the room uh, of both legitimate and illegitimate marketers. It's, it's required them to go to one side or the other. Uh, and most legitimate marketers today, I think, are, are doing a fantastic job of servicing their clients and getting getting ads to in front of eyeballs that really want to see them. Fair enough. I'm 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 really heartened to hear you uh, saying this. It's uh, it's really good to hear. Well, and that's I uh, be, before we we talked, I'd sort of alluded to the uh, a point that I think complicates all of this is that cybercrime to me, you, you've really to take on cybercrime is a tremendous problem. Most people, though, conflate it with uh, the overall problem of how do good actors within the Internet compete with each other appropriately and how do we resolve disputes between and among them. And I try to make the analogy that cybercrime is, no one has yet put their finger on exactly what cybercrime is like. This is a brand new thing, yet it's not. We have dealt with this before. And the analogy that I've come up with that I think really works and captures this problem is uh, the analogy of a riot in a bazaar. 
It is the equivalent of a cyber riot in a crowded marketplace that is full of lots of other people, innocent victims, both who are merchants and consumers. Uh, and cyber criminals are acting like both merchants and consumers at various times, running through this bazaar trying to engage in their criminal enterprise. And so our ability to fight those cyber criminals is complicated by the fact that the battle space is, is uh, inhabited by lots of innocents that are indistinguishable from the bad guys. And so part of our fight is to try to remove those innocents from the battle space and also remove battles between them because their battles are uniquely different from the ones we're fighting against cyber criminals. You know, where you have a commercial dispute between a merchant and a consumer uh, over whether the consumer really agreed to the terms of service, for example, um, you know who the consumer was. Consumers not usually trying to hide their identity in the first instance. Um, so, so many of these sort of commercial disputes that take place on the Internet take place between two, I call them white hats, um, where neither of them is trying to hide their identity. They're all in business for the long term. They're trying to build a value around a brand that they willingly advertise and pay good money to advertise. And they are engaged in business in the same space that the bad guys are in that we're trying to catch who are not investing in any brand, aren't using their real names ever, and are doing everything they can to hide and simply find some way to exploit the system to make money. And so a lot of the debate that I hear out there, to me, is it's interesting at, at one level, but it's also a debate I don't engage in because I'm trying to make a practice where we get corporate victims to uh, band together to identify and stop serious serial cybercrime. Uh, and if we can do that, the space in the commercial market will change substantially. The costs of doing business will be reduced substantially. That these other sort of gray disputes, uh, where both sides have at some point a legitimate position, are going to be clarified and in many ways simplified. When do you, when do you see that happening? Good question. Um, I guess, I, I mean, every year it does get better. It does get clearer. Well, I think it, I think it does. I think it is a slow process. And I think, um, I talk about the maturing of the cybercrime life cycle. I think we are still only in the teen years of a, of the maturation process, uh, for cybercrime. And by that I mean we still have, we, we are not yet close to a static state where cyber criminals and their systems have developed uh, as far as they can develop. And until that happens, we are going to continue to chase them, and they're simply going to retreat back uh, to darker and darker places in the world that make it harder for us to get to them. And I think we're going to see a dichotomy in the next 10 years or so, a division uh, within the Internet governance space, um, where a couple of major countries, whether it's China leaving ICANN or the United States leaving ICANN, think you're going to see something that uh, a division between nation states that emerges that finds cyber criminals on one side of the divide and law-abiding citizens on the other. So when you talk about cyber criminals in general, this, uh, the, the area of the, of the bad guys, so you're not seeing them in the U.S. anymore. You're seeing them all in countries like China and 
places like that. Well, that's the thing. No, we're we're not. We're still seeing them. Many of them still physically living in the United States. And I, that's why I say we're not yet past the teen years in this maturation process because um, we have seen some cyber criminals who are Americans who have physically left the United States, but they have not given up their U.S. citizenship. Uh, and in a post-9-11 world, they have some hard decisions to make. You know, and the, this, is, this is all of the development of the law. If, if you're an American citizen, wherever you live in the world, you're still subject to certain de minimis laws of the United States. And not many people know this, but there is a law that allows private civilians, civilian litigants, to ask a judge to order an American anywhere in the world to return to the United States to be deposed. Um, it's not used very often, but it is available. And... Uh, I anticipate that it will be used more and more in the cyber arena as U.S. citizens flee the United States uh, but don't give up their citizenship because that's that's a hard thing to do. You know, the so Marines, the people that are doing this from the U.S., are these the people that we see on the ROXO list? Are they, I mean, who, who are they? Yeah, well, they're, um, they're certainly, they are or their aliases are on the ROXO list. Um, I think that uh, the Roxo list is a pretty good indicia of who the big actors so you are. Do you feel that Roxo is accurate? It's yes, it, it's accurate in terms of um, what one can know about who these actors are without the power of subpoena. Um, Roxo listed uh, Jeremy James as Gavin Stuberfield years back at number eight on the Roxo list, and I have no reason to question their ranking that Gavin Stuberfield was number eight. But he wasn't Gavin Stuberfield. His real name was Jeremy James. And you could only figure that out through a subpoena, uh, which requires you to have legal process. Um, so there are certain Internet data points about bad guys that Spam House and others may collect that serve as good placeholders for identity, but they're not pure identity. And to me, this the, the battle we're fighting is to try to force the cyber crime enterprise to mature more quickly to get to that static state that I've described so that we can then bring greater force to bear against the bad guys uh, wherever we find them ultimately residing. Um, and to do that, we need to much more aggressively use, in my view, the civil litigation process. Um, we're spending billions of dollars collectively on technology to filter and block and in one way or another deny access to internet data points that in one way or another we've decided should be blacklisted, whether it's domain names, IP addresses, email addresses, what have you. But none of those data points are inherently tied to the human beings engaged in this conduct. And so we are constantly playing a game of cat and mouse on the technology side um, and we are starting to have government enforcers engage in the long, drawn-out battle to identify and arrest these bad guys. But anyone that's played that game knows that's an extremely long, slow, cumbersome process. And there is a huge middle ground that is largely unoccupied. And that's where our firm stands. And that is finding a way to use the civil litigation process to accelerate the transformation from Internet identity data points to real identity data points. And then once you have identity, 
strategically identify something that can be done to those human beings, whether it's suing them civilly, making a referral to government authorities, uh, or reinforcing technical filters to keep those people from getting access to the Internet tools and, and services they need to continue. So what are, looking at the, the Roxo list, um, there's a guy like Alan Rowski. He's been known about for a very long time. Yep. Um, he's, he's living somewhere in Michigan. I mean, what's the issue with stopping him from doing what he's doing? Uh, well, we, um, we were actually the first people to identify Rowski. I caught Al Rowski for Verizon Online back in 2001, and we got a judgment against him in 2002. That's one of the cases that really changed the space because Ralski argued at the time we sued him in Virginia. He was working out of Michigan, and we sued him in Virginia arguing that someone who sends out bulk email without regard to where it's going to land can be sued wherever their spam lands. And he tried to argue that he could only be sued in Michigan. And uh, he lost that case, and we, we won a summary judgment victory um, that was quite important in establishing, essentially, spammers can be sued wherever their spam causes injury. But we caught him in 2001. The federal government, the FBI, raided his house, I believe, about a year ago and finally busted him, allegedly, for um, engaging in pump-and-dump schemes, spam advertising Chinese stocks. And Chinese we, stocks. Yep, Chinese stocks. And he had a large, large enterprise of people that were helping him, some in China, but most in the United States. Um, and so he can get caught, but if, if we wait for law and government law enforcement to catch them, you're going to wait years longer than you otherwise need to wait, um, than it would take if we can work, um, engage in self-help, through private actors. So you actors. basically get a bunch of big companies to bankroll you to go after guys like him to stop him. Well, in essence, yeah. In essence, and that's what they're doing by paying taxes to hire government law enforcement. The trouble is government law enforcement have um, resource constraints right. and political constraints and even legal constraints. The criminal process is intended to be an inefficient process because we don't want to make it easy for citizens to be arrested and accused of crimes, properly so. But we also have a civil litigation uh, process that exists for good reasons as well to allow private sector actors who are hurt to seek redress for those injuries. Right. No, I get it. Um, I, I know that your, your focus is on the, the, the really, like, the, the, the black end of the spectrum. I, I do want to ask you some more questions on the gray area because this is um, something that's relevant to a lot of this audience. Um, sure. If you don't mind. Not a bit. Um, one of the areas that's interesting to me is can spam. Um, well, first, uh, um, what is your opinion of uh, can spam law? Uh, my, from 100,000 feet, it's a an arrow that's nice to have in your quiver of uh, weapons, but it is not a silver bullet. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone that thought it would be a silver bullet uh, was naive. For me, the thing I don't understand about can spam is that it creates a, a very big loophole that's very easily walked through. Um, that's that's totally totally legal and just hasn't been um, sorted out yet, and I, I don't understand why. So I'm very happy to have you here today, where I can now ask you this is my my big question. Um, <clears throat> when when people sign up to my CEO list, I I have um, I can put um, terms and conditions um, and privacy policy and all that sort of stuff on the site, 
and my privacy policy could say that I choose to make all of my email addresses available to Chinese Viagra spammers, and um, and I'll, I'll also give them to whoever else I, I choose to give them to. Um, if, if I'm really bad, I know I can put a checkbox on my site and say I agree to the terms and conditions of signing up to the Media Innovators uh, private CEO list, and they've then opted into whatever is written in my privacy policy, and I can put whatever I want in there. Um, that, and that can include reselling my list to as many people as I want to resell it to or give it to or, or however I want to, whatever I want to do with it. I don't understand why that is allowed. Can you maybe help me understand that? Why you're allowed to essentially resell your list? Um, why I'm allowed to bury the terms of reselling my list in, in things like terms and conditions. Sure. Well, but, I mean, I, I, and I'm in, in this point, I mean, even you, I imagine, don't read the terms and conditions of every site you opt into. I mean, maybe you do. Um, but, you know, Grandma, Grandma Jean in uh, Nebraska is not, and she's never going to read that sort of stuff. And I don't know why it's set up so that she, she would even have to consider reading terms and conditions for something like this. Right, and the reality is most people won't. Um, and so you're going to do what you want with that email, address, um, but if you have made disclosures, uh, you can and should be held to the limits of those disclosures. And then if you are, if it turns out that you're doing something with those email addresses that the owner of the address doesn't want to have happen, they should have the opportunity to opt out. But once, I think it's very hard for government to get into the business of defining, certainly in a federal statute, that 435 congressmen and 100 senators have to vote on um, that spells out exactly what fair notice means. In to me, it can be solved simply. I mean, let me give you an example. What if I, there's a condition that opting into you know bad guys list that says um, I agree to have my email address resold 200 times? So that that then gets as soon as they opt in, it's resold 200 times. So they can opt out, but they're going to now have to opt out 200 times. Mm -hmm. I've heard from the other standpoint, guys will say, you know what, when you get those fresh email addresses, you've got to mail them quicker and more than everyone else because you've got to mail them before they go dead. Right. Right. But ultimately, um, a lot of this debate is over consent. And I often, this is, again, one of the gray areas that people like to debate, but it's not as interesting to me because I, I have had marketers argue to me that they had essentially a blood test and a spinal tap from the consumer that gave them consent to do what they're trying to do with the email address. Mm -hmm. And I've, I have said to them, the consumer changed his mind. And the consumer has the absolute right to change their mind, and you as a marketer can't do much about it. The best marketers are those who understand that the value they have is getting value in front of eyeballs that want to see what they're advertising. And so if, if there's a disagreement between a marketer and a consumer, at some level, write the law however you want to write it, the consumer's going to win that fight. Because well, you're they're not, not though. Right now, the consumer's losing. Um, the way I see it as a simple solution is, let's say you, they're signing up for my domain, MediaInnovators.com. And you, as you sign up, you, it, it says clearly on the, start, on the sign up page, your email will come from meetinnovators.com. Mm -hmm. And that's your license to email from that address, and, and that's it. And you have a relationship then with that domain and that address, and that's where your mail comes from. And if you want to go changing it, then you can opt your list back in. To me, that's the solution. 
I don't. I just. I, I'm so torn on this, and I don't understand why it, it doesn't happen in, in, in another. In, in a, why it happens in another way? It seems like at this point this should be well enough understood. Well, yeah. I, I think ultimately, though, innovative marketers and effective marketers are going to develop systems that uh, intuitively monitor and react to consumer preferences. And um, to say that someone can strong-arm a consumer or has a right to strong-arm a consumer, to me, is a losing argument. It may take a while for, um, for that sort of business to die, but it's inevitably going to die. Um, yeah, I mean, it's still there today, and it's, you know, it's billions of dollars in business. Sure, but I think that as marketing gets more and more targeted and, and as consumers get more and more aware of what their rights are and how they can where they can go on the Internet to see the things that they care about and express their preferences, and they see marketers uh, reacting to their preferences, you're going to see them, uh, you're going to see them gravitating to those sorts of mechanisms. But see, well, here's, here's the point. To, to, to get opt-ins like this, um, let's say I, I, can, I can support putting on my website, uh, put your email address in here, and, and you'll get $1,000 in cash. If mm-hmm. I can buy more media than anybody else um, by having the strongest offer, then I'm going to be able to collect more email addresses from these people who don't read the terms and conditions. Sure. Um, case in point, a few years ago, I'm sure you're very familiar with all of the spyware stuff. Those guys who doing uh, illegal spyware installs were able to pay them the most for traffic because they were able to monetize the most effectively because they drove everyone the most crazy. Mm-hmm. But they still, um, they still, in the end, have to have something to sell to those eyeballs. Well, and- pop-ups. But there's pop-ups on your computer. That's, that stuff's obviously gone away, but there's, sti- there's still a lot of this, um, like the race to the bottom. The guy who can pay the most for traffic um, and, and monetize his list better and do you know, the most aggressive stuff with the list is able to get, get the biggest list. And mm-hmm. so you, it, it becomes very hard to compete with. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If we're going in an, an area outside your expertise, tell me. Um, I see this as a, as a kind of a defining point in, uh, in, in, in email for me. Well, and I... Um I would agree with that, but I think that um, in the end, the long-term play is going to be the empowerment of the consumer, and marketers are going to develop techniques that more accurately capture consumer preference. And I think you already are seeing illegitimate marketers. We've seen a a convergence, really, between spam has always, in my view, been illegal, regardless of what the law says. It's, It's socially improper. And uh, things that are socially improper have been illegal for a long time. So even before CAN-SPAM came along, SPAM was illegal under state law and uh, all sorts of other other uh, laws. Um, but SPAM is really now married to illegal product because spammers have nothing left to advertise. And people selling illegal product or um, product that is... Um, regulated in some way, say counterfeit drugs, for example, um, are naturally attracted to each other because they need each other. Spammers need something to advertise. So it's, and, it's, it's a cesspool that, that was a lot larger and is gradually shrinking and shrinking each right. year. Is that, and I, is that accurate? I, I think, yeah. I, I think I don't know that the pool is shrinking, but it is starting to segregate itself from the pool of legitimate marketers and legitimate manufacturers of goods and services who are gravitating towards legitimate marketers. And yes, there, there may be things like click-through ads and other, 
other types of advertising mechanisms that are still in the middle bollocksing up this dichotomy between lawful and unlawful, but I think we're starting to see the end game where those middle middle actors are having to move left or right to the lawful side or or to the unlawful side. Yeah, I, I, I still there's a I think there's a lot a lot, a lot further to go. Um, I, I guess what you said, you know, maybe it is going to take another ten years. I, I guess I'd agree with that. Um, Another point I'm interested to, to ask your opinion on, um, I tag my email addresses. So when I sign up for different sites, I tag them with the domain so that I can see where the different mail is coming from. Mm-hmm. And um, I signed up for a site called BidBrain and another called Template Monster. Um, and in both cases, I've noticed um, various types of porn since coming to those addresses, including in the case of Template Monster, um, bestiality porn. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty surprised by that. What, what, actually, what actually is happening behind the scenes? Um, I mean, this is just Template Monster. I bought a template from there for a website. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to uh, touch on any particular website that you may be mentioning, but the the uh, problem overall is is uh, one that's that's really uh, an old model. Um, there are lots of websites that are out there selling things that um, are really being used for uh, ulterior purposes. Um, people who are just looking to try to get email addresses. Um, or they may be victims themselves of data breaches where their email databases are being stolen. In these cases, these are both um, legitimate, you know, fairly popular companies, and so I'm certainly there's no there's no bad stuff intentionally going on. It must have been some kind of a breach. I just I was really shocked to see that from two of these companies. They they look like they've got their act together. Well, and that's uh, I think that the your system of tagging email addresses provides you. Um, a view into those sorts of problems that you're going to see more and more people doing and and even companies commercializing in a way. You already see, you know, you've got throwaway credit cards, you've got throwaway email addresses. The ability of consumers to um, personalize their identity in ways that give them a great view into how their data is being used, there's a tremendous amount of value in that, in getting that into the hands of consumers and then collectivizing what we all can know about the things that people are doing with this data as a result. And so it would be interesting to know what other people's experiences at those websites or other websites are like so you can really see patterns and trends. And if there was a data breach, you can determine down to the day or the minute when the data breach took place based on when various email addresses were posted there. There are, uh, is there a place where you, a guy like you gets reports on that sort of stuff that you know, we can send it to? I mean, I know there's obviously the FTC address and there's been um, spam cop, but is there any, any uh, are there better places now? Sure. Yeah, there are a number of reporting uh, websites that take in that data. We have one that we operate called reportfish.org uh, where we receive reports primarily about fish but also about spam and other types of fraudulent acts. Um, that can be reported to us. You can send it to report at reportfish.org or you can register at that website and get a unique email address that you can then use to forward your particular reports to us so that they are, um, they're tagged as coming from, coming from each registered user. Do you get a lot of reports through a site like that? Uh, we do. We do. It's one I mean, of... And so, because stuff like that, I mean, it's just general phishing stuff. I mean, there's a lot of that out there. Um, actually, why don't you tell us a little bit about phishing and what's going on? Uh, well, the phishing problem, I think, is really integrated within the overall cybercrime problem. We have, um, we're chasing some cybercriminals today who are uh, engaged in phishing, 
and cashing out of stolen credit cards, and at the same time are merchants uh, that are part of a nationwide and international uh, credit card system, uh, and they're authorized to take credit cards over the Internet. And they're successfully processing cards from consumers and selling them product and getting and in credit cards. In a case cards. like that, I mean, wouldn't that be trivially easy for you guys to go after their merchant account and stop them? Um, it's not trivial, but certainly using our process, I think it is, um, uh, it's, a, it's a viable mechanism to putting a stop to it. But again, the, um, the path that connects the, their phishing activities with their uh, merchant credit card activities is an extremely long path, and it takes a tremendous amount of data and sophistication to connect the dots. Hmm. I, mean, I, I, I used to think phishing was just for idiots, um, and it, uh, probably about a year after it really started happening, I got caught by a phishing attack in PayPal, and I went and logged in and entered in my, all my PayPal info. I did the same on an Amazon site, too. Right. It, was, it was early in the morning. I got up, and I was sort of checking my email, and it said, oh, your PayPal account's going to be shut down, and so I log in and enter it all in, and you know, 30 seconds later, I'm like, my God, what have I just done? Right. <laughs> and that's the problem with the, um, the block it, filter it strategy that we've largely adopted today. The bad guys only have to get through one time in order right. to win. And so if you block them 99 times, they'll do it 100 times. And if you raise your accuracy to 99.9%, they just have to get to 1,000. Yeah. And so you're in a constant arms race in the technology space that inevitably we're going to lose. And that's why you've got to be taking the – you've got to do something with those incidents those that are a technological loss to us. You've got to take those and chase them somehow and have some offense to the defense. Yeah. And right now we as a society are woefully inadequate in playing offense in this game. I but think it's getting a lot better. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm using Google Apps for my email, and I'm pretty impressed with the job they do on filtering. I think they do a pretty pretty awesome job. Mm-hmm. I used to have to personally ta- take all my tagged email addresses and filter them all to my spam folder. Mm-hmm. Um, I found now that very little spam gets into my inbox, and it all just they they just handle it. And, um, I think things are things are improving a lot. Um, we've got we're actually on the edge of our time. Um, I still have a bunch more stuff. I would be interested to ask you about, including some of your things, what you're doing with companies that have brands that are getting those abused. But uh, just uh, if you're if you're out of time, then let me know. No, I'm I'm fine. I've got a a block still open, so if you want to okay. keep going, it's fine with me. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, what so on that point of filtering, what's your what are what are your viewpoints? I mean, obviously, I'm happy with Google Apps. I'm probably using one of the better systems out there. Are you involved in that side and the sort of stuff that uh, people like Ann Mitchell are doing? I'm um, a little bit, a little bit. I think the um, the technology is always going to play an important part. My point has always been, I think, that we have been too reliant for too long on the technology without recognizing how legal process can reinforce what technology is capable of doing. And I think um, technology, in a way, is like trying to nail jello to the wall. Um, we may be able to fix one component, but it uh, three new exploits open up constantly. And so I, despite the fact that your experience seems to be good with respect to inbound spam, the overall spam volume on the Internet is still growing. It's at 90% and growing. Um, And I don't see that trend reversing itself for a long time. Um, And it goes well beyond spam. You know, the, the number of new viruses out there is growing constantly. The number of exploits um, keystroke loggers and whatnot 
those problems are simply getting larger and larger, and I, I think that criminal enterprise that's behind it is getting more and more sophisticated and adept at finding a way to monetize the data that they're able to capture through these sorts of exploits. So you uh, mentioned they, they're moving offshore, and, and obviously you know that I live in the Dominican Republic. You, you said that there are guys that are down here, they're in Panama and Dominica. What's, what's going on? What are these guys doing? I mean, I've, I'm down here, and obviously that means people look about and say, oh, my God, what's he doing down there? I don't know any of those guys, and I, I don't even know where they would be. Where are they setting up, and what are they doing? Mm-hmm. Well, some of them, I think, are going just where they want to go, but many of the ones that are the most sophisticated are moving their persons to places where they are physically insulated from law enforcement. Uh, they're looking for places where they can pay off local authorities to provide them protection uh, from criminal enforcers and from extradition. That um, definitely works in this country. Yeah, but I think... Um, uh, again, many of well, them. Are, I think this is one of the top ten most corrupt countries in the world. Well, and that's that's why I say there's a convergence between cybercrime and uh, cyber terrorism, and even acts of cyber warfare. You're going to see all of those types of bad guys gravitating. Their bodies, their money, their equipment are all going to end up in the same general places. So it's a little bit like this, the stuff we see today around money laundering, and then there's all the uh, KYC, know your client, and um, that sort of stuff to keep the banking system clean. But um, there's also kind of a firewall between um, mainstream um, big countries and then some of the more shady countries. Is that what we're going to see with spam as well? You're already seeing it. Those who are right. engaged in it, this, a lot of our work comes down to a tying identity to these Internet data points and then marrying that up against pre-existing laws um, that already exist that make these cyber crimes criminal in dozens of ways. You know, they're all violating tax laws. They're breaking money laundering laws. They're breaking all sorts of laws on importation of goods. It's not hard to find something that they're doing that's illegal. The trick is knowing who they are. I can tell you from the standpoint of living down here, it's made my banking a real, real big, real big hassle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm not doing anything wrong. The stuff they, that you have to go through with the, the, the KYC regulations are a real pain. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, I mean, that's good. That, that really will create a firewall that's going to stop them. Well, now, um, exactly. At, at 100,000 feet, what we're trying to do as a, as a, as a world view is create borders, whether they're right. technical borders or physical borders or what have you that allow us an opportunity to inspect, whether we're inspecting Internet cyber packets or we're inspecting transactions, flows of money. So it's okay. All you bad guys, you go off there and live in, well, hopefully not Dominican Republic, but you know they can go to Panama, for example. So all the bad guys can go there, and so then you can just inspect uh, more, more closely traffic from Panama. Right, and you can tighten up the border, and you can, um, uh, you can ultimately just cut off the border completely. That's why I, I think we're going to be facing uh, more frequently over the ne next decade real blacklists where certain types of traffic, whether it's uh, flow of humans or flow of money or flow of information, it's, there are going to be borders that simply aren't porous. They don't let information through. Which of the countries do you see that happening with? Well, I think, um, I think you've got a lot of bad guys in Eastern Europe and Russia. Um, I see South America and I see Asia developing as... Um, real havens in some ways or another, whether it be 
computer resources, money laundering, or um, physical protection. I've got to tell you, I mean, I've traveled a lot um, and lived in a lot of different countries. And, I mean, let's, let's say the Dominican Republic did get grouped into that. Um, I mean, a guy like me that lives here, um, uh, you know, I have hundreds of friends locally that are, that are, are normal, good people. And the, the concept that the, their Internet traffic would just be blocked is um, almost a little bit hard to believe. Um, or do you think it will come to that standpoint where they say, the U.S. says, okay, Dominican Republic, we are shutting you off the Internet uh, until you make sure that your country is completely cleaned up. And as soon as you're cleaned up, then we'll let you back on. Is sure. that kind of thing that will happen? It's it, it, that will the, the binary decision of it, turning the valve completely off will happen at the margin, but in between all open and all closed, you have an entire spectrum of controls that you can put in place, and a lot of that is designed to simply put on those people who are best positioned to fix the problem, the cost and obligation to fix the problem, and so yes, citizens of a country have an obligation, and it's it's interesting that we're having this conversation on election day in the United States. Um, I think the the post-9-11 world uh, makes everyone as a consumer and as a citizen sit up and realize, wait a minute, I can't wait for my government to fix all of the problems out there. We as individuals have an obligation and a duty and the right and the ability to step up and fix these problems. This comes down as someone like ICANN gets together and says, okay, Dominican Republic, um, there are 9 million people there and you might have, you know, 10 guys that are bad, but we're shutting all of you off the internet until this is fixed. And so therefore, that's, if the government is so corrupt that it can't handle it, it's going to kind of not force the citizenry, but it's going to really motivate them to push government to clean itself up to, 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 to fix that. Is that, is that the direction you see it taking? Sure. And I don't know that, the, again, that it will be a, just a, a binary decision out of the cold, either fix it immediately or go dark, but there will be those pressures of isolating the problem and putting on the, the, the people who control those access points responsibility to clean up their act. It's just like the cleaning up the affiliate model, mm. right? We couldn't, identify, we couldn't go after Cyber Entertainment Network until we knew that the websites ultimately being advertised uh, were all in one way or another controlled by Cyber Entertainment Network. And once you make that connection... Uh, it's relatively easy to find the ultimate owner and say, you've got a problem. You've yeah, got no, a problem. I get it. It's, just, it's hard to hear it because, I mean, these are so many good people here and so many of them are in, in, in just in poverty. But, and this is the kind of stuff that pushes them down even further. But I, I can see why you do it, too. It, it, it's, it, you can view it, though, as pushing them down, but you can also view it in an alternative way as empowering them because it does. It gives them the power to control their own destiny and the obligation to do it. And I think what you really have to look for are um, mechanisms that get caught in a race to the bottom, as you said earlier. What we have to avoid are creating systemic mechanisms that encourage and reward races to the bottom. And I'm a little afraid that the Internet as a whole, given the power of anonymity and the ability to do things in an automated fashion, creates at some level a race to the bottom. And oh, you have you have, for example, goods manufacturers, you know, and drug manufacturers who are for the first time really seeing counterfeiters who before had to sell their goods from the back of a of a, a, a truck now have access to the world as a whole and have access through spam and other types of advertising um, to billions of eyeballs throughout the world. And so Finding a way to 
address that problem, recognizing the uh, inefficiencies in our legal enforcement process, it's a very hard thing. And I'm a little afraid that we do have a race to the bottom where good companies like that that are dependent on legal mechanisms to um, give them the ability to invest, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to develop a new drug. If they can't recoup that cost, we're not going to get new drugs developed. And right now they're, they are being challenged by bad guys who are selling counterfeits or knockoffs or generics made out of countries that don't recognize patent rights. Right. And so we yeah, are... It's, a, it's the same issue. And yeah. so we've got to find a way to, I think, jumpstart, to, to recognize those systemic races to the bottom and, and put in some sort of stopgap measure that prevents that from happening. I mean, I, I really think, as much as it sucks, I think regulation is really the only way to get a lot of this in properly because, I mean, what we see, where you're describing in the case of drug companies and knockoffs in um, non-patent-respecting countries for, for a lot of our stuff, it's, hey, I can't buy as much media as this other guy because he's doing things that are a thousand times more aggressive than I am and they're currently legal because there's no laws passed against them. Right, right. So do I do those things too so that I can compete with him on media uh, or, or do I not, and then have a, a business that's uh, one, one, um, one one thousandth of the other guy? And I, and I, I don't think in the end you're going to solve the problem by, um, by informing those sorts of individual choices. What you have to do, if you have a systemic problem that is a race to the bottom, you have to find other mechanisms that almost screw the other way, uh, that corkscrew the other way, that are races to the top. You have to create jurisdictions that are defined by borders where the borders are defensible, and you have to create those jurisdictions with rules that encourage races to the top so that, for example, uh, everyone knows that Delaware state law is favorable to corporations, uh, which is why most corporations of any substance incorporate there. And lots of people talk about Delaware state law being a race to the top, um, that of all the state laws out there, Delaware's is at the top of the hierarchy because it provides the most stable, predictable, efficient legal process for companies, and anyone trying to maximize profits is going to incorporate there. We need that same sort of mentality to be brought into Internet systems um, and then defend those systems so that they can serve as a counterweight against these races to the bottom and segregate those jurisdictions that, are, that do suffer from races to the bottom and isolate their problems within themselves so that they are incentivized to clean themselves up and ultimately have to in order to rejoin the rest of the world. That's, um, a, that's, a, that's a fascinating idea. Where, where can I learn more about that? Who, who is someone that talks about that stuff or their books on it? Or um, you know, there are a couple, um, a classmate of mine, um, Jack Goldsmith, wrote a book called Who Controls the Internet um, that I think provides a refreshing, realistic perspective on how jurisdictions do retain power over the dirt that they control. And it it is refreshing to see that um, uh, even the Internet is subject to those sorts of real politics notions of power and control. Um, I think there are also some books being written about um, the economics of uh, cybersecurity and uh, cyber relationships that will drive a lot of this because a, a lot of these systemic problems are going to be how can we monetize the value that's inherent in the Internet.
And so understanding those systemic efforts to monetize the Internet, I think, are, are going to be important to understand the problem. But, it's, you know, it's a, psycho- it's a psychology experiment. It's um, anthropology. It's economics. It's politics. It's law. Um, the Internet, that's why I think the Internet is so fascinating for so many different types of people because it really that, does. Um, that concept of race to the top is one of the most profound ideas I think I've heard all year. Um, that's something I've been struggling with for years. And I, I, well, I, I, I'm going I'm to get Jack's book, and uh, if there's any other resources on that, I'd love to know about them. Well, and that's, I, I don't know of many others. There, there may be a um, sort of a deficiency in the literature right now about that, but um, certainly you can look to other... Again, the Internet may be new, but the concept of building systems that generate a race to the top is not is not new. Um, there's lots of literature on that in other uh, other fields of study. What would could, be a field of study that successfully solved that problem? Well, I think the, um, the development of state laws. Um, I think there are lots of uh, organizations that are looking to develop model state laws that um, integrate good concepts that encourage races to the top versus races to the bottom. Mm-hmm. You know, the Association of Attorneys General or uh, there are a number, number of uh, legal organizations that try to develop model laws that various states can, can adopt, whether it's the UCC or um, electronic commerce laws, what have you. Are there any others that are, so building state laws, um, are there any others that have, uh, that ref- have reflected that problem being solved? Well, I, I don't know about the ultimate solution. Um, I think you're going to see it in the money laundering world, probably in uh, um, a lot of legal environments, patent protections. I think you'll see some literature. So that it's talks happening in, patent prote- in the patent protection area, you mean? Well, yeah, I think uh, lots of people have talked historically about um, the value of patents and that it is really a, um, a right that uh, developed countries more than undeveloped or developing countries recognize and respect because they have the assets um, to, to protect there. Uh, countries like India have generally uh, inferior patent protections because uh, India doesn't have a lot of innovators. And um, as a result, as India develops, innovators are going to flee India because they can't get the protections that they want. And is India so that they need to be encouraged to build in uh, this race to the top type system for patent protection, which will encourage their entrepreneurs to stay in India and build the kinds of companies that can help them grow. Exactly. Exactly. I'm going to I'm going to really look into this. That's uh, that's an amazing idea. Thank you for, for sharing that. <laughs> oh, my um, pleasure. Yeah, that's great. I hope it resonates. Um, you know, and a, a lot of this, it's uh, the internet's not developed, and these theories aren't developed, so. Um, no, but because I've been struggling with this, and there's been no no direction to go in, and you've just pointed the way, and that that clearly is the right answer. It's just, mm-hmm. and God knows how to do it, but at least that well, that is that's the path. And I think the key is to focus on precise things that we're doing. It's things like we have to have borders, and a lot of people. I've been saying this to a lot of technology folks and asking them um, in the technology space come up with a router or some piece of technology that can recognize physical geography and jurisdiction. So, for example, let's give grandma the ability to surf the Internet, but tell her browser that she only wants to go to places supported in the United States, places that she would physically travel to. Grandma doesn't want to go to 
Malaysia. She doesn't want to go to North Korea. She doesn't want to go to Russia. You know, places that Grandma just has no desire to go to. Give her the ability to translate that physicality into her Internet experience or her email experience. And that gives law enforcers the ability to say to bad guys, you're crossing a border, you're now on my dirt, and if you do something wrong, I get to do something to you. And create a carrot and stick mechanism that rewards good behavior and punishes and deters bad behavior. If we can find a way to marry that sort of technology with uh, jurisdictional borders, you're going to accelerate the ability of law enforcement, whether it's civil or criminal, to start throwing carrots and sticks out at the world and um, encourage this sort of race to the top. Because it can't be a race to the top until there are real carrots and sticks that work. Yep. Yeah, no, exactly. And those will come over time. And that, that, can't, ha- that can't happen as long as the, the Internet truly is some common space that nobody owns. As long as everyone views it as someone else's thing, you're going to take your sheep and you're going to put them out in that common space and say, eat the grass and bring them back in at night and harvest them or sell them or slaughter them or whatever you do to make your money off them. And they're going to eat the grass in the commons until it's gone. Right. And to me, we've, we've got to find a way to bring that border control concept but without it becoming a corporate, taken over by corporations, but it's it's somehow so. I mean, actually, um, I mean, I can is 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 one is an organization that that should be strong in this area, but in fact they are fairly weak. United Nations is also not that terribly strong either, right? Mm-hmm. That's I think I can has challenges over um, whether their job is simply to make the trains run on time, or to care about whether the trains are are um, engaged in lawful commerce. So, so your feeling is that it, it's similar to that the, the ICANN should be helping um, developing this race to the top? Oh, absolutely. And, absolutely. and are they not today? Uh, I think they're only beginning to understand that they cannot bury their heads in the sand and deny that they have a tremendously powerful role in enabling criminal enterprise. And they are either part of the solution or, by definition, they are part of the problem. I mean, bad guys today, to give you an idea, the the bad guy space is still in its teen years of maturing. The spam you get is almost always advertising a domain name, right? It's not advertising an IP address. It's got a domain name in it. That domain name was purchased by someone in the end accredited by ICANN, right? There are a relatively small number of bad guys and enablers out there selling thousands of domain names a month to these bad guys that are all known within the ICANN system. So it's just it's basically the same as affiliate marketing. Um, you've got to know who all the people are, and the banks have to know your customers. Um, you're saying it should be the same for domains? Exactly. We, and we haven't yet gotten to the stage where we've made it hard enough for them to buy domain names that they no longer do it and start dealing just in IP addresses. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that seems um, blindingly obvious. Is that not a, an argument that you can make very easily to them? Well, you can make it, but they view, uh, they view themselves as having limited powers to, um, to do anything about it, to do anything about it. For example, there are... Um, I can. I mean, they're the ones that control the domain name infrastructure on the Internet, and they say they don't have the power. Um, 
Yes, in in. I mean, if they don't have that power, who does? <laughs> the, the Department of Defense is it, you know? <laughs> and I think that's um, I think that's why uh, that's that is why I say in the next ten years I think we're going to see a nation state division in the domain name space. Right. I think I think the United States government and other governments that that understand the coming battle need to define some internet space that they can control and declare dominion over it. And you're, if the U.S. doesn't do it, China's going to do it. Russia's, someone is going to do it. And once and they... Then, so then all these guys then get pushed to where they can't buy domain names anymore. And, and so then they've either got to steal their domain names or just mail to IP addresses, and that's going to be make the spam even harder. That's right. great. Right. Yeah. Or they, have, they now have to get access to... Um, they can't get access to premium domain names that can be technologically distinguished from other other internet data points and allowed through it's like airports that um, have you know frequent flyer express lanes that let frequent flyers go through without being subject to all the physical searches that everyone else has to go through finding ways to create an efficient border that distinguishes between good traffic and bad traffic or unknown traffic yeah and so, I, you know, so you got you got proxy servers and everything else that can make that difficult, but um, right. I, I get the I get the point and the, and the direction. Right, and that's that's the myriad ways in which the law can provide feedback to these technical filters that can allow the technical filters to become more powerful and yeah. more and more efficient. It's inevitable. Um, now you you mentioned um, that uh, you you work with companies that are having uh, problems with their domains being spammed um, or their brands being spammed. What does it, what does that mean, and what how do you help? Well, drug companies, for example, we've got a current lawsuit pending. Uh, we've been doing about an 18-month investigation into the online world of counterfeit drugs, and it's a fascinating world. Um, but drug manufacturers in the U.S. and elsewhere are uh, obviously being inundated with bad guys that are either spam advertising or uh, even buying paid advertising, paid AdWords on trademarked drugs. Uh, and driving that traffic to websites that are fulfilling those orders but shipping counterfeit product uh, to unwary consumers or to consumers who know perfectly well but who don't care because they're actually getting the active pharmacological ingredient. You know, they're getting a generic from India or from China that uh, may contain the active ingredient but was manufactured uh, under a process that is not as carefully regulated for safety and uh, uh, efficacy as the systems we've created in the United States. And uh, those, uh, those drug companies, I think, are facing huge losses and really losses of unknown size as, uh, as these sales just disappear from their books. And, and the criminal. So when you get in and go and help a company with that, um, what does, how does that work? What do they typically pay? What, what's involved? How long does it take? All that sort of stuff. Well, we have two sort of pricing models. Uh, we use our technology to grab the data in the first instance. So we have feeds from public sector and private sector clients that tell us about these websites and ads, and then we basically spider the web, grab all the data we need to get identity. We triage that data looking for commonalities. Uh, and then through uh, undercover buys, informal investigative efforts, and formal discovery efforts that we launch using John Doe, uh, John Doe lawsuits, we'll issue subpoenas to the enablers um, 
designed to work our way towards hard identity on who these bad guys are. We may identify their real names, their real bank accounts, the real domains that they're using. Um, we identify the merchant accounts that they're using to process credit cards. And um, we do that sort of generic triage work on a flat fee basis for our clients. So, um, for example, you, you for $5,000 a month, we will acquire the data about a particular drug and provide to the client a, a, um, our analysis of the top fingerprints that we see in that mass of data and show them a path to identity. And then they can then hire us to do the additional work required to chase that to fruition, to its, to its conclusion. Um, but we also provide them as part of our uh, standard fee access to all the other information that we've acquired through any other work. And I think that's what's innovative about the work that we do is that our clients agree that they that they agree that we can share data with all of our clients that we acquire about bad guys, regardless of which client we acquired on behalf of, because our clients recognize and agree that cybercrime is a common enemy, and that they are best protected when they share information about their enemy across the space. The identity of clients remains sacrosanct. We don't identify clients publicly except when we're required to do so in filing lawsuits or uh, through other means. Uh, information about their relationship with the bad guy, for example, the fact that they may have been victimized on a particular date, will also remain at least anonymized. So we may tell client X that client Y was victimized by the same serial fraudster on the same day and approximately the same time so that client X and Y can know that there's someone else out there that's interested in catching this person so that they can each make the decision whether they want to join hands through us and either remain anonymous or actually identify themselves to each other and by combining resources get to the objective of finding identity and coming up with a strategic solution to the problem far faster than they could ever do on their own. So it's our ability to share data across clients and yet retain the attorney work product uh, privilege and the attorney uh, client communication privilege that is one of the core values that we add to our client base by allowing them to, uh, in essence, report acts to us and empower us to catch the bad guy faster than anyone else can and to do so on behalf of our uh, entire client base. So, I mean, does this end up affecting major brands like Zappos and all these other, like, you know, Best Buy, all these big brands on the web? Uh, sure. I, if if you have a fraud problem, um, we have a solution that could help you. Um, are you still there, Adrian? It, yeah, I'm here. Everybody has a fraud problem. Uh, and to the extent they've got a fraud problem, then uh, we have a view into it that can be helpful to them. Uh, I think our solution is a longer-term solution, and so the return on investment um, is a longer-term consideration for us. But when it comes to hiring law firms, I think most companies uh, don't really even look at return on investment. They, they view this litigation as, uh, as a straight-up loss. Um, and I think that's the difference between the service we provide as a law firm and other, other more traditional big law firms. You know, there it's just a financial drain, and for us, we are offering a an ultimate solution to the problem 
um, that to me is the only viable solution out there. Either you're going to fix start to address this problem using this, these techniques now, or you're going to wait until your fraud problem becomes a larger percentage of your, of your overall revenue or profit until you decide, okay, I've now got to start paying attention to not just fraud, but how do we fight the fraud? And the answer ultimately is you've got to fight it strategically. I think, and too many well, people, can I buy stock in your company? Because it sounds like you've got a very good business model there. <laughs> yeah, well, um, as I say, we're marrying technology with legal practice, and there aren't many others that are doing that. Um, but it's, it's, You have a tech team to back all this up. So you could take a brand name like Zappos, for example, go and find the instances of where Zappos is being um, fraudulently used on the net, provide reports in um, periodically, like every couple of weeks, every month, and then if there's some area that becomes a big issue, you can then step on that and, and they can they can retain you to go after it. And does it, do you potentially collect settlements from these guys or do you just put them out of business? Well, it depends. Uh, it depends on who they are, what we can do to them, what the client wants to have done. That's part of the point is um, giving them the ability to monitor what their problem, uh, what their baseline problem is and who's responsible for it from an enabling view. Who's selling the domain names that are being used by the bad guys? Who's a record hosting? Who's DNSing? Uh, who's e- whose email addresses are being used in all of these communications? And then part of our process for a fixed monthly fee is to reach out to those enablers and recruit them to the fight, putting them on notice of the role that they're playing and laying out for them um, their obligations, saying they need to be sure they're getting identity. They need to be enforcing their own terms of service. They need to be investigating based on our complaints and reporting back to us on what they've done. Do you just focus on email? I mean, do you, like I'm getting a lot of IM spam at the moment. Someone's figured out how to spam uh, Hotmail right. uh, or MSN. But do, I mean, you do go after other stuff as well, or is it just email? Uh, no, we go after anything, any sort of fraudulent, uh, fraudulent Internet activity that impacts. So you're like a, a bad guy sheriff now, you know, like the Wild West sheriff. Uh, in the private sector, yeah. I think there's, um, it's inevitable that that sort of service develop, and we're definitely in that space. We see value, um, value in providing that service and trying to encourage races to the top. And that's, um, what it, what it makes me feel good about all of this is that no matter how bad and corrupt some places become, I only need one good jurisdiction to provide me the legal resources and mechanisms we need to get at the bad guy. So, for example, it, it's relatively easy to identify a victim. Let's say we've got a spammer um, advertising something and we want to get at, we identify an enabler in Malaysia. Uh, all I need to do is find a victim in Malaysia to justify filing a lawsuit in that jurisdiction to issue a subpoena to that Malaysian enabler to get from that enabler the identity they have on the bad guy and then bring that data back to the mothership and use it um, worldwide. So you're going and doing this stuff, filing lawsuits in, in subpoenas and stuff in, in like random countries like Malaysia and, and getting that done. I mean, how on earth do you manage that all from the state? Well, it, and it, it's not randomly done. It's done based on a strategic view that this enabler in this jurisdiction knows something that's going to be extremely valuable to our, our overall strategy against this bad guy. And have you have you done that sort of stuff here in the Dominican Republic? Um, no, we've I mean, not. That, not quite, with. I know the, the, some some of the stuff done here, and it, it's pretty antiqu- antiquated. And, uh, that, I, 
not with along with the language barrier and everything else. I, I'm impressed that you could even even start to do that. Well, it doesn't have to. Um, it rarely begins with legal process. Our practice again entails uh, capturing the data and then working it through legal process. A lot of it's informal. A lot right. of it it may be through investi- undercover investigative efforts. Um, there is a lot of activity throughout the world that lots of people are engaging in to try to acquire more information uh, and marry that up against uh, what else can be known. And so uh, our, our first instinct is not, I, I think a lot of people hear the legal process, they hear us trying to bring legal process to bear and they think, oh, it's expensive and you're just suing people. Lawsuits are the last thing we do. The last thing, because it's it is not cheap, um, and so when we do bring lawsuits, they're they're strategic in nature, and they are generally designed to first get us subpoena power, to get us at the underlying information that we need. Most of the enforcement mechanisms, in the end, that we see are are criminal or even military and covert, and there's no reason why this data can't be used for those purposes. We've covered a lot of stuff, and this has been a really interesting call. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you would like to discuss? Uh, I don't think so, other than the election. See how that turns out. We'll know, we'll know soon. This, this people will be hearing this interview actually well after the election. All right, so uh, history will have been made by then. Yeah. yeah so. Well, Adrian, I appreciate your time. This has been uh, enjoyable for me as well, and I hope uh, I hope your listeners find it valuable. Thank you. Thank you again. My pleasure.